I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings and chapter 13. We have another busy morning ahead of us. I'm going to try and get through two more chapters. Next week we'll go through chapters 15 and 16. We're going to pick up speed even as the decline in Israel and Judah is picking up speed. Our text this morning again is a long one, and so I will open us up by reading the first ten verses of chapter 13 as we follow along with this story. Hear now the very word of God that is inerrant, it is inspired, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. 2 Kings chapter 13. In the twenty-third year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned for seventeen years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them continually into the hand of Hazel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless... They did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at the threshing. Now the, acts, now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his place. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning as a people in need of hearing from you of knowing your will, knowing your love for us, your will for us. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would bless us by your word and your spirit, that we would learn from you, and that we would be not only put, but kept on the path of righteousness, that we might be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of partially paying attention to something? Or maybe, if that's never happened to you, maybe someone you know that's close to you has had that experience. I don't mean multitasking. I mean the sort of partial attention that is given to something as, for example... When the husband is on the couch during the big football game, 
and the wife comes in and begins to ask questions. And after a few too many, yeah, sure, of course, yeah. The questions take on a different tone, like, and that would be okay if I bought that $10,000 necklace, right? Yeah, sure, okay, yeah. And we can sell the car and rent out the kids, right? Well, yeah, sure, okay. Or maybe it's what happens to moms as they're busy doing things, and kids come up and ask different questions, and after a while it takes on the tone of something like this. So it would be okay, Mom, if I went out and played in traffic, right? Yeah, sure, go ahead, be good. Or it's the child sitting in front of the computer or the video game. So I guess you want turnips and green beans for supper tonight, right? Whatever you say, Mom. Sounds great to me. Love it. You know, it's one of those things where we, we think we're paying attention. It's not just that we're giving others that impression, but we truly think we are paying attention. At least until the next day or the next hour when the subject comes up again. Here's your green beans. I never said I wanted green beans. What are you doing playing out in the street? I never said you could play out in the street. You bought what? You see, we thought we were paying attention, but we weren't. That can happen in spiritual things as well. It happens to people. And here we see it can happen to nations as well. As they're only partially paying attention to what God is saying. Saying to them in His Word. Saying to them in His providence. And saying to them in His mercy. And so we're going to see this in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And I'd like us to ask ourselves four questions. Or excuse me, three questions. And I'd like you to ask yourselves these three questions personally. They'll be illustrated by our story, but these are not questions of dead Israelites and Judites. They're questions for you and for me. The first thing I'd like us to ask ourselves is, do we dare to listen? Do we dare to listen to God in all circumstances? And then the second thing, which oftentimes, sadly, is as difficult for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we dare to hope? After we've heard, do we dare to hope in what God has provided for us? And then finally, the third question to ask ourselves is, do we dare to see? So if you are ready, I'd like us to see if we are daring enough to listen, to hope, and to see from 2 Kings 13. 14. Let's start by looking at the listening in verses 1 through 9 that we've just read. Do we dare to listen to God? It's not as easy as it might sound at first glance. You see, the first thing that makes it difficult is God sometimes speaks through pain. And it's hard to listen when God is speaking through pain. That's what's happening here in Israel. The crisis is over of chapters 10, 11, and 12. Stability has come to the region of Judah and Israel. There are two kings on the throne. Both of them will reign a long period of time. Both of them will reign longer than the longest period that someone has been president of the United States. Just to give you an idea. There is stability in the region. And that stability has come about through something that we will begin to see a little bit more and more of 
in chapters to come. And something that I want you to have in the back of your mind. You see, we are focused here on Israel and Judah. And it's as if we've taken the world and taken a magnifying glass and gone down or a microscope to see what is critical to see. But we can't forget that there's the rest of the world out there. God wants us to focus here, but let's remember what else is out there. There is a large kingdom called Syria, just to the north of Israel. But there is an even larger empire called Assyria. Now, that can be confusing, can't it? There's Syria and Assyria. And you tell the difference because Assyria has two S's. It's not just one of those old Syrias. It's the empire of Assyria. And at, time, at times that come and go, Assyria and Syria are at war. And the simple rule of thumb is, when they're at war, Israel breathes a sigh of relief. It's kind of like two bullies in a playground. And when they're fighting each other, the little kid who sits on the side can wipe his brow and eat his lunch in peace. But when they make up and shake hands, then the bully comes back and he finds the little guy in the playground. And he kicks him a little bit, takes his milk, pokes at him. And so at the start of what's going on here, there is peace between Syria and Israel because Assyria is on the move. It's as if we might say, today, the financial crisis just ended. And it ended in a good way. That Everyone said, wow, I'm glad that's over. Life would go back to normal after a fashion, wouldn't it? It's kind of like what we saw in history after World War II was finished. Those of you that are old enough to remember that know that that was a time of great relief and of great peace and of great hope and of great promise because there had been so much tension and so much concern built up and then things stabilized. That's what's going on here. They're going back to the boring business. You remember me talking about that last week, but their boring business is self-focus. You see, there's peace, so the kingdom of Israel begins looking inward, begins looking at themselves at all the things that they have. And there is now a new king in town. There's a new king, and his name is Jehoahaz. The very fact that there is a new king in town shows that God keeps his promises. Do you remember in 2 Kings 10, God's promise to Jehu? That even though he was a usurper, his family would sit on the throne for four generations, right? Well, here we have God immediately showing that he's keeping his promise. Here's generation number two. Something that just seems ordinary, but it shows God keeping his promises. It should be something that Jehoahaz should be aware of and be thankful for. You would hope that his father had taught him that prophecy as a way of encouraging him and his family. God has kept his promise to Jehu. But we see the way that Jehoahaz listens to the promise of God. He doesn't. There's a complete lack of appreciation for what God has done. Verse 2 tells us that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam. And he did this so egregiously that the anger of the Lord burned hot against him. And so we have an all-too-familiar biblical cycle. 
the people of God walk away from God and ignore God. And God is not to be ignored. And His anger builds up, and He sends an oppressor against them. Syria. He gives them into the hand of Hazel. You see, Hazel might think he was a crackerjack general. He might think his army was the best, but really, it's God who's doing the military might here. God has given Israel into the hand of Hazel. And the language here in verse 3 is very similar to the language that you might be familiar with in the book of Judges, where the people of Israel wander from God, and God sends them an oppressor, and then they cry out, and God sends them a redeemer or a savior. God speaks to his people in the midst of pain. Have you ever thought about that in your own life? Have you thought about the fact that the raise you didn't get, or the layoff that came your way, or the difficulties in your family, or the illness that you have, might not be, strictly speaking, punishment, but might be a way in which God is grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, listen to me. There are more important things at work here than money or even health. I want you to listen to me. You see, God gets our attention through pain. It's a fatherly way of communicating with His children to save them from greater pain and suffering. Those of you that have children know this quite well by means of illustration. At least one thing that is involved with every time you have spanked your children is getting their attention. It's amazing how focused a child can be after a spanking, isn't it? They're immediately aware of what's going on and what has happened to them. They're not thinking about the baseball game or the television show. God tries to get our focus. God gets our focus, sometimes through pain. But God doesn't just speak through pain. He also speaks through mercy. Because, you see, what God is doing here to Israel is not punishing them. God sees the end of the story that we will see in a few chapters. He sees exile coming. He sees the destruction of Israel coming. He sees the path of death that they are on, and he gets their attention. And then he says to them, My people, listen to me. See the mercy and goodness and love that is found in a relationship with the Lord. Look at what happens here. Something amazing. The anger of the Lord burns against Israel. And then in verse 4, Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord. Doesn't that strike you as completely amazing and unpredictable? I mean, think about that. Anytime someone tells you the Bible doesn't have twists and turns, point them to 2 Kings 13, verse 4. Here you have a man whose whole life is dedicated to spurning God and staying away from God and seeking other gods, and he sees the difficulty of himself and his people and the pain that is out there, and he turns toward God. It's nothing less than amazing. Well, there's at least one more thing that's amazing than that. It's the second half of verse 4. That God listens to him. Can you imagine that? 
God listened to an idolater, to a bull worshiper, to a wicked man who's causing his people to walk in wickedness? Why does God listen? Why doesn't God get out a really big hammer and hit him on the top of the head and hit him twice, once for not listening and then once for asking? Have you thought about that? Well, if you've looked out in our society, you might ask yourself the same question. Why would God listen to the church? A church that at large has said his Bible is irrelevant, untrue. A church that has said his plan for leadership and government of the church, as we saw in 1 Timothy 3, is out of date. A church that has said his message is too restrictive. Why should God listen, broadly speaking, to the church? Is it because Jehoahaz has finally got it all together and he finally knows what he's supposed to do and now God says, well, he deserves the second hearing. He deserves a second chance. Have you ever heard that phrase? Isn't that a curious phrase, how someone deserves a second chance? No. The chance you may have deserved was the first one. Why is it that God gives this second chance here? It's because of His own promise and His covenant. The Lord listened to him, for he saw the suppression of Israel, how the king of Israel oppressed them. You see, God remembers His promise. God remembers His relationship. God remembers His covenant. We see that here in verse 4. And we see it again in verse 23, where he remembers the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God listens because of his own character. Does that excite you? It should. Because if you came here this morning after a fight, or if you haven't been as diligent in prayer as you have, as you should be, God listens not because of your merit, but because of His character. It is who He is. He speaks to His people and He listens. And how does He answer them here? He answers them by sending a deliverer. Now, they have had this experience. It's kind of bound up a bit here in verse 5. What has basically happened is Israel is experiencing a type of exile. They have been cast out. They are living in tents. They have almost no army at all. They have been almost wiped off the map. God has given them a preview. You know, like when you go into the theater and you watch those three-minute previews of what the movie will be like, and you decide whether or not you'll go to see it based on that preview? God is putting that up in front of Israel saying, do you want to know what the path you're on is like? Here's a shot. Here's a preview shot of it. It's death. It's destruction. It's defeat. And what God does is He sends a deliverer to bring them back from the brink of exile because God delights in mercy. But there's a sad truth here, and that is that Israel doesn't really listen. The first hint we see of this is in the actual request. Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord. Now, we've seen people go to the Lord before, especially some of our unnamed people whom Elisha has helped. 
And as you get a chance this afternoon, flip back through some of those passages and you will notice the language is very particular. It says, they cried out to the Lord. They gave themselves completely over to God. They cry out in prayer. Jehoahaz doesn't do that here. He seeks the favor of the Lord. There's only one other place in the Bible this phrase is used. It's used in a conversation between Samuel and Saul. When Saul is trying to describe his disobedience in 1 Samuel 13, verse 10, he says, well, I sought the favor of the Lord. And you can almost hear the half-heartedness in it. And the example of Saul helps us to put our arms around this half-heartedness. But the second place that we see that they're not listening is in this incredibly sad word in verse 6. Nevertheless, even though God had sent them a Savior, nevertheless, the people of Israel did not depart from their sins. In the face of God's grace, they serve back up ingratitude. And the ingratitude is with a flourish. Because not only do they not stop what they were doing, they find an Asherah pole, just like the one that had been torn down by Jehu, and they set it up. Asherah was the wife of Baal in pagan deities. They set up an idolatrous pole and they worship it. They go from bad to worse, from frying pan to fire. Because you see, they're showing a truth that is true of the world today. And that is that when people are in dire straits who do not have a vibrant relationship with the Lord, they don't want a relationship with God. They want relief. They don't want transformation by the power of God. They want therapy. They want to be fixed so they can go on doing what they were doing better than they did before. May that not be said of the church of Jesus Christ. When God speaks to you in pain and in mercy, is that how you respond? Just seeking relief from what is in front of you? Or do you want more of God? Does it drive you to know Jesus in a better and more deep way? That's why God is speaking. He wants relationship. He wants transformation. Well, Israel doesn't listen. But then the second question that comes to us is do we dare to hope? And it comes in the form of two very odd stories. If you had a chance to read them this week, you probably scratched your head and you said, I wonder what he's going to do with these stories. Shooting arrows out the window. People coming to life when they touch dead bones. What's God saying to us here? Well, let's take a look. Do we dare to hope? The first thing that we see, I think, in verses 10 through 19 is a picture of hope. A picture of hope. And then next we'll look at words of hope in verses 20 through 25. The first thing that we see is a picture of hope. Jehoash, let's call him Jehoash to distinguish him from Joash, the man of the same name in the other kingdom. Jehoash comes to come see Elisha the prophet. And now we're at a very different point than we were a few minutes ago. The stability is a bit rocky. There's a new king 
Jehoahaz is done, and his son is on the throne, and now the most powerful force in Israel is ill. You know Elisha, the one who's worth three tank divisions? He's ill. You can imagine why Jehoash is a bit concerned. His secret weapon against Syria is teetering on the brink of death. And so he comes. We don't know from the text whether he's sincere in worrying about Elisha's health or not. He could be concerned for Elisha or he could be just worried about his pocket neutron bomb. You know, Elisha, the one that wiped out not one but two Syrian armies. And so he comes up and he weeps. I think the tears are real because Jehoash is seeing his kingdom pass before his eyes. He knows he's in trouble. He knows his people are in trouble. And so he comes to Elisha and he wants to find an answer. And Elisha does something very odd. He doesn't give him words of wisdom. He doesn't give him a secret handshake. He says to him, get a bow and arrow. And he takes him by the hand. He puts his hands on the king's hands, uniting in one purpose, and they shoot an arrow out the window. And Elisha tells him that this is an acted-out prophecy. He says, that arrow is an arrow of salvation. It is an arrow of victory. It is an arrow of deliverance. And he says, you will have victory at Aphek, here in verse 17. Aphek should remind us of something, of 1 Kings 20, when Ahab met the Syrian army and wiped them out. And you remember, the king of Syria hid himself up in the city of Aphek, and Ahab failed to finish the job off. It was probably one of the greatest victories that the army of Israel had accomplished over the course of decades. And Elisha calls that up, and he reminds Jehoash that victory is within his grasp. And then he says something, he says something odd, and then there's an odd reaction. He says, take the arrows and strike the ground. And from the text, we're not sure if the picture that first comes to my mind is of the king grabbing a pack of arrows and kneeling down and beating the ground like a dust. But it could also be that he would take the arrows out of the quiver and shoot them into the ground outside the window. Either way, the idea here is Elisha has given this act over to Jehoash and said, go after it. Live with gusto. Claim God's promises with both hands and hold on tight. And Jehoash says, well, okay. How's that? Or I'll take half the arrows out of the quiver. All right. How's that? Is that enough? Is that good for you? You see, the idea we're supposed to get is that he's very lackadaisical in what he's doing. He doesn't really see the whole sense of it. Now, you would think, if you were the king of the people of God, and your nation was in dire straits, and the greatest prophet in your lifetime, or your father's lifetime, or your grandfather's lifetime, had told you to do something after he had just said, God will provide victory, you would think you would be a little bit excited and go after this with gusto. But he doesn't. 
His obedience is mediocre. And so what happens is, at least part of the promise appears to come back. Well, you'll hurt Syria, but you won't destroy them. You should have claimed the promise, Jehoash. Now notice here, Jehoash doesn't claim the promise of God. He's not being asked by Elisha to name something and claim it. The promise has already been put out there. And Jehoash is mediocre in the way he goes after this. This shouldn't surprise us. Because if we look up a couple of verses, we see Jehoash's reign described in verses 10 through 13. And it's really humdrum. All of the years in which he reigns, 16 years, are described in normal formulas. And then there's this incident at the end of it. And we think to ourselves, why is it set up this way? And I think it's because this incident is the crucial event in his life. This is Jehoash's chance to show what he's made of. And what he is made of is lackadaisical, uncaring, partial obedience. The question comes to you. When the promise of God lands in your lap, how do you treat it? When God tells you, train up a child in the way he shall go, and he will never depart from it, do you say, well, that's kind of a neat promise. Okay, thanks, God. Or do you grab that promise every time you relate to your children? When God says, I have cast away your sins as far as the east is from the west, is your response, well, okay, but I still feel weighed down. Or do you say, that is incredible. Now I can go out and live for the Lord. I can't believe he would promise that to me. You see, God wants you to seize his promises with gusto, with relish. The promise of God should stir you to excitement. Have you gotten so used to the way life is that you don't think real change is possible? I think that's part of what's going on with Jehoash here. He doesn't really see that the world could be that different than it is right now. And Elisha has taken the time to act all of this out in front of him. This is a picture of hope, not just for Jehoash, but for you. And it's backed up by words of hope. Look in verse 20. Elisha dies and they bury him. And a band of Moabites come in to invade the land and they have to, the burial party needs to hightail it out of there. So they take the body. And you don't get a real sense of it, I think, because we use cast in different ways. They're not really very polite about this funeral. The word here is more like they chunk him out the window. Or they, they heave him into the cave. It's a very kind of crass word. It's a word you might do when you toss the garbage bag out toward the garbage can. They're, they want to get out of here. They are unceremoniously dumping this guy. And I think there's a picture here for the people of Israel. Because this is 
in a sense, like the way that God will cast or chuck or heave Israel out of Israel into exile. As a matter of fact, it's the same word that is used. And so what happens here is this man gets thrown in and he touches the bones of Elisha. He comes back to life. And the church has made it a business, literally, of misinterpreting this verse. This verse is responsible for more saints' toes and toothpicks from the cross and every other relic you could get your hands on, little vials of water from the Jordan, honey from bees from the promised land. But you see, it's not the magic of Elisha's bones. It's actually not even really about Elisha. It's about God. It's about hope that comes from the power of God that says even though Elisha is dead, God still has power to bring the dead to life again. That's something Elisha did. You see, the power is not Elisha's. The power is God's. And it's fitting that the last word, isn't it, from both Elijah and Elisha should be, death is not the winner. If you thought Paul was the only one that said in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? No, we have Elisha caught up to heaven, cheating death. We have Elisha, even after he's dead, bringing life from death. Hope is found in the power of God. It's also found in the covenant of God. Because look at what happens in the next verses. Hazel attacks Israel, and God is gracious toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has not cast them away, same word, from his presence until now. That is, God is compassionate because of his covenant. His graciousness is grounded in reality. God is not fickle. God is not nice sometimes and mean other times. God's graciousness and mercy is founded in His character. And that even until now, the author says, God is being gracious to the people of God because of His covenant. And that last thing that we see here at the end of chapter 13 is that Jehoash... The son of Jehoahaz took again from Ben-Hadad the cities that he had taken from his father in war. And how many times did he defeat him? Three. Exactly as Elisha had predicted. Do you see God now speaking to them words of hope in truth? You see, God says to them, I am powerful. I have given you a covenant, and everything I say comes to pass. Three times, not four times, not two times, not two and a half times. Everything I say comes to pass. We said this before, is that how you see the promises of God? That they always come true every single time? Perfectly. Do you dare to hope because of what God provides? Finally and briefly, the question then comes to us in chapter 14, do we dare to see? Do we dare to see God in the midst of what we have in front of us? And we begin to see him as a new king comes to Judah. His name is Amaziah. 
And he is the son of Joash. He takes the throne after Joash is murdered, you'll recall from last week. There is a new king, and we are very hopeful as we read the beginning of chapter 14. Because Joash had a bad ending, he was killed, but Amaziah begins to reign, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And we wonder, maybe they finally got it together here now. Until we read the rest of that verse. Because the rest of that verse gives us ominous language again. There's that music in the background. He did what was right, but not like David. He did like Joash. You know, he's not an A's and B's king. He's kind of a solid C. Doesn't exactly thrill your heart, does it? To know that he sort of is okay. That ominous language comes out. And it's borne out by a mixed record. The first thing that Amaziah does is he obeys the law in exacting revenge on those who killed his father. Unlike Jehu, he only kills those who are responsible. He does not kill the children. Why? Because Deuteronomy 24.16 says, You shall not put to death the children for the sins of the father. But it's a mixed record because he lets the worship go on at the high places. It's just a little bit bad mixed in with good, right? Not so bad. How many of you are interested if I pull out a case of peanut butter from that plant in Georgia? It's only got a little bit of salmonella in that plant. I'm not even sure every case has salmonella or every jar, right? What's a little bit of salmonella mixed in with peanut butter? How much could that hurt? Anybody want to volunteer to eat one? Didn't think so. You see, that makes sense to us. But it's true in spiritual things, too. We can't mix wickedness in with obedience. If we want to be Christians, our faith must permeate every aspect of our lives. We can't compartmentalize and say, well, we can be a little bit disobedient here. That leads to trouble. In the case of Amaziah, it leads to pride. As he gets a victory over the small kingdom of Edom, and he gets puffed up a bit. And he says to he says to the king of Israel, he says, Come on, let's go meet over there and go rumble. And the king of Israel says, um, You don't want to mess with me. I've just defeated Syria three times. You really don't want to mess with me. And he says it, and he does not understand the biblical proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath. I mean, he provokes him with this story. And Amaziah says, no, I want to meet you. And then Judah gets its first picture of exile. The language here is almost exactly like the language in chapter 24, where Babylon comes in. And they take the king, and they break down the wall, and they take the treasures, and they take hostages. It's almost exactly the same language. You see, Judah gets a picture of what this is like. So, Amaziah is king, and there's this good start, but not so good of a finish, a bad finish. But what Amaziah doesn't see, what Judah needs to see, what we need to see is that God is in control. Because even in the midst of all of this 
chaos and difficulty. The king is captured. Then the king is killed. All of this that's going on, there is a stability that God brings to all of Judah. Do you notice that no one even suggests that we find a different king? Doesn't that seem a little odd to you? That every time they find a king they don't like, they put his son on the throne? They don't try and find someone new? It's because God's in control of all of this. God gives stability to both Israel and Judah. He gives them peace, and they waste it fighting each other and going after idols. Have you thought about that in our lifetime? You know, we worry about things that are out and about in the world. We worry about nuclear weapons. We worry about financial crises. We worry about taxes. We worry about things. But have you thought about the fact that we are living in the midst of the greatest period of relative peace and prosperity on the history of the planet? What are you doing today in the midst of that stability? We will all go home, and Lord willing, our homes will still be there. There won't be roving marauders or bandits. We will go to work on Monday, Lord willing. There is not mass chaos, war, and death. The people of God are to use these periods of stability to advance the kingdom of God, not to bicker with each other, not to be self-centered the way Israel was. This is an opportunity that God has laid in our midst. You see, Israel doesn't realize this. The final thing that we see here, the end of the story, is Jeroboam II reigning in Israel. And he gets but a few verses, which is very interesting because Jeroboam II was the most powerful king Israel had. During his period of time, Israel had the most wealth it ever had, and it actually achieved the same border that Solomon had centuries before. He is the most successful king in the history of Israel, and he gets basically formulas. Because you see, God is not interested in his checkbook or his stock market or his military might. Jeroboam gets surprising little press because the real importance here is God's purpose. You see, Jeroboam and the people of Israel thought, we know through the prophet Amos, that prosperity was a sign of God's blessing, when in reality it is a sign only of God's compassion. You see, appearances can be deceiving. It's like the Olympics. You remember when that went on about the large crowds that were involved at all of these Olympic events and how wonderful it was that there was so much support for all of the teams? And then someone found out that the Chinese had hired professional spectators to cheer for both teams just to make it seem like the Olympics were a success? Sometimes that can happen in the midst of our prosperity. We lose sight of what is critical and important And who is in charge? And you see, God is in charge here. This is an important thing for us to see, not just as we listen to a sermon, but every day. As we live lives before the cross, we need to see that God is in charge. We need to listen to God's voice. And it is from there that we get hope. If we don't listen to the Lord, 
There's no hope to be found. If we don't look to the Lord, there is no hope to be seen. God is out there speaking to His people, drawing them to Himself with bands of love. A prophet speaking at this time, Hosea says. Is that the God that you serve? Do you seek Him out? Do you listen to His voice? Do you trust Him with all of your hopes and dreams? This is the God of the Bible. It's your God, Christian. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given to us this Your Word, that You have blessed us beyond all measure. We pray, O Lord, that You would work in our lives by means of Your Word and Your grace and Your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.